All right. Well, good morning again, uh, and this is the special bonus sermon on the Anglican Reformation. So, as you remember, last week Joe took us through the Reformation. Generally speaking, we would think of that as the Continental Reformation. That's people like Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, yeah, the folks who were uh, involved in uh, Reformation efforts, the Protestant Reformation on the continent of Europe, places like Germany and France and Switzerland. But today, what I want to talk about specifically is the Anglican Reformation, that is to say, what was going on in the Reformation in England uh, and the British Isles more broadly. Two reasons for that. One is that it is a variation on the Continental Reformation. It's not exactly the same story. And the second being is we consider the relationship that we've been invited to enter into with our friends in the Episcopal Church. This is a big part of their history and their heritage, and it would be good for us to know a little bit about that. And as you know, I became an Episcopalian, which means I became an Anglican about seven months ago. And what that means is that I bear a legacy of shame. Let me explain what I mean by that. I was just talking to Ron. He said he wasn't able to stick around and ask what I was going to be talking about. And I said, the Anglican Reformation. He said, oh, Henry VIII and all that. And yeah, this kind of is Henry VIII and all that. But it's not just Henry VIII and all that. First of all, it's important to recognize that even before Henry VIII, there is a strong interest within England in... uh, worship in the vernacular. That is to say, uh, the pattern, uh, the, the habit, the, the solid way of doing things was to celebrate the Mass in Latin. And of course, to have any readings from Scripture be in Latin, from Jerome's Vulgate. Uh, the idea of having these, any prayers, of having a sermon in a language other than Latin was a novel one. But there had already been interest in England in doing that, and there had been people who, had, uh, who were making translations of Scripture. Uh, famously, um, John Wycliffe and, and uh, later on uh, William Tyndall were involved in translating the Bible into English. You also have, uh, frankly, a deep interest on the part of the English church in not being so beholden to Rome and not being so thoroughly under the control of the Bishop of Rome, that is to say, the Pope. But this really does come to a head with Henry VIII. Henry VIII uh, came to the throne in 1509, married Catherine of Aragorn. Problem was that Henry wanted a male heir, and uh, Catherine was only having female babies that survived. Um, Now, because he was not finding a male heir with his wife Catherine, and also because he was getting, quite frankly, sick of her, uh, he was very interested in ending his relationship with Catherine and in taking up with one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting named Anne Boleyn, with whom Henry had already begun a relationship. Now, despite the fact that Henry's infidelity with Anne Boleyn was not the first, in fact, among his paramours was Catherine's, uh, uh, was Anne's sister Mary before that. Uh, but Catherine was committed to upholding her end of the marriage vows. And the problem for Henry, in addition to the fact that his wife didn't want a divorce, was that the Pope 
didn't want him to get a divorce either. The Pope, which is Clement VII, was not willing to annul Henry's marriage to Catherine. And so if Henry couldn't get an annulment, then he couldn't get another marriage, which means that he couldn't marry Anne Boleyn, which means he couldn't get a male heir, which means he wouldn't have a legacy, and he would have to pass on his kingdom to another who was not his, his son. Now, what I should note is that Henry, despite his really bad behavior, which is not at all uncommon for kings then or now, uh, he understood himself to be a devout Christian. In fact, um, uh, some six years before that, uh, he was awarded the title Defender of the Faith by Pope Leo X uh, for writing a book criticizing Martin Luther, uh, defending all seven of the sacraments against Luther, who only held to two, maybe a third. And what that means, I think, is it was probably important to Henry personally uh, as well as legally and politically, to have his marriage annulled by the Pope, to have this done in the right way. I think he was, he was probably personally offended that the Pope was not going to give religious sanction to what he wanted to do. Uh, the problem was he wanted to do it, and kings tend to not like to take no for an answer. And so if the Pope wasn't going to do it, he was going to have to find a religious authority that would do it. So enter Thomas Cranmer. Uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the, the highest-ranking bishop in England. Now, Cranmer was able to come up with a theological justification for this annulment that Henry wanted, and he uh, did that by consulting with some other theologians and bishops in England. Not all of them thought this was something that could be justified, but Cranmer managed to figure out a way to justify it. One key piece of this justification was rejecting papal supremacy in, order, uh, in favor of royal supremacy. In other words, saying that it's not the pope, but the king who is over the Church of England. And so if the pope is not over the Church of England, but the king is over the Church of England, then the pope can't deny the king what he wants because it's the king of England, not the bishop of Rome, who is the head of the church in England. So... Because of this, Henry manages to get a new wife for himself, and he also manages to get Jesus' wife, at least the part of Jesus' wife that's in England, his church. So you have, again, what's going on is that is Henry is understood to be the head of the church in England. Now, if we're paying attention to this, I think we probably need, feel like we need a shower already. I mean, as Americans, we have a hard time with the idea of any political authority being the head of the church. We like separation of church and state. This actually goes way back to our Baptist roots. Uh, but in Henry's story, in a very real sense, you've got church and state being treated as one and the same. And as history usually shows, when the church gets into bed with the state, it doesn't get to be on top and it doesn't get any respect in the morning. So when you fast forward about 20 years... When uh, Henry's son, Edward VI, dies of tuberculosis at the age of 16, he is succeeded by none other than Mary, the daughter of Henry by his very first wife, Catherine, who, like her mother, was Catholic and who had been for some time now nursing grudges against her father who had put away her mother and anybody who came from her father's putting away of her mother. Uh, it was not because she sat around drinking vodka with tomato juice spiked with horseradish that she was known as Bloody Mary. She 
had a whole lot of people killed in her fairly short reign. Among them, Archbishop Cranmer. She had him burned at the stake, in fact. She restored the Roman influences in the liturgy that had been uh, overthrown, and she made sure uh, during her brief time that people would be following Rome once again, not only the, the authority of the Pope, but also all the practices of the Roman Church, including, for example, the, the Roman Rite, which had been tossed out, because one of Cranmer's great developments before he was burned at the stake was in writing and developing and publishing the Book of Common Prayer, 1549. This is, incidentally, four years before uh, Mary, um, two years after Henry died and was succeeded by his son, Edward VI. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer was published. And the, the idea of the Book of Common Prayer was that everybody in England would be praying from the same prayer book, which would, incidentally, be in English and would involve the opportunity to not only to pray together in English, but that everybody would have the same calendar of reading, so that if you were going to church, you would be learning uh, well from the Scriptures. He had it set up that if you went to both morning and evening prayer, you would hear the entire Bible read to you over the course of a year, and you would go through the Psalms every month. So, Cranmer certainly had, with the Reformers, a deep interest in upholding the authority of Scripture and in treating it uh, as, as important, treating it with respect, and in wanting, wanting to learn it, and, of course, to learn it, have people learning it in their native tongue. And I want to emphasize this phrase, but one use. I'll even read you that from the, the preface to that first book of Common Prayer in 1549. He says, where heretofore there hath been great diversity in saying and singing in churches within this realm, some following Salisbury use, you may have heard of the Sarum rite or the Sarum usage, that's what that is, some Hereford use, which would start two hours later than everybody else, some the use of Bangor, some of York, and some of Lincoln, but now from henceforth, all the whole realm shall have but one use. And it's not that all the whole realm shall have but one belief or but one theological paradigm, but... What he was saying is that, yes, in this, in this land where we have people with both Catholic and Reformist and Protestantizing sympathies, we're going to have one use, one prayer book that we can all use together in praying. So there's a sense in which the Anglican Reformation wasn't as fully Protestant, so to speak, as the Reformation on the continent, the Anglican worship service. Uh, still bore a whole lot of similarity to the Roman Catholic worship service. Again, it kind of depended on what year you're talking about and who was doing it, but some of the things that you would find in the Catholic service were still there in the Anglican service, uh, even more than were retained in the Lutheran service. There's a sense in which the Anglican church was neither Protestant nor Catholic, but something in between. You may have heard of the phrase via media, that is the middle way. And there's a, a sense in which the Anglican movement is a middle way between Protestantism and Catholic, Catholicism. Not fully one, not fully the other, but incorporating elements of both. This came up in America when, of course, the, the uh, Episcopal Church, what we know now as the Episcopal Church, uh, basically was the uh, American franchise of the Anglican Church. 
there was a huge debate when the church started as to what it would call itself. And one of the early decisions that the Episcopal Church made in the 1780s when it officially began was to call itself the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. One of the reasons for that, frankly, was the fact that Anglican was not a really marketable label at that point. Um, you may recall there was that nastiness about the tea and the taxes and so forth. Um, in fact, one of the, the, the very first American bishop, Samuel Seabury, uh, had, been, <laughs> had been a chaplain to the uh, Tories, to the British troops. In fact, uh, Seabury had even drawn maps for their use in, uh, in uh, military exercises. Uh, he continued to draw his pension from the, from the throne to his death. Uh, and this perhaps is one reason why in, in 1750, for example, one of three American churchgoers was uh, Anglican, was Episcopalian. And in 1800, one in 100 was. Uh, the Anglican Church was seen as the church of the mother country, of the Tories, of the oppressors who had been routed. And so, for marketing purposes, if for nothing else, they needed to come up with something that wouldn't scream British. And so they said the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. And over the years, there have been efforts within the Episcopal Church to take that name Protestant off, because... Sometimes people like the Protestant quality, and sometimes people think, well, maybe we're not quite so Protestant as those other Protestants. So you will sometimes hear Anglicans lumped in with uh, Protestant denominations like the Lutherans and the Methodists and the, uh, and the uh, Disciples of Christ, and sometimes you'll hear them talked about as their own sort of separate category. And in a way, both are true. Uh, but it is also true that our religious tradition, that is, for those of us who are Anglican, our religious tradition has been built on a pretty rotten foundation. You've got theological whoredom, political intrigue, outright murder, and that's just from the stuff that we've talked about. But the truth is you're going to find this in any summary of just about any faith tradition's history. Certainly you're going to find the same thing in the history of the Catholic Church. The great reformers like Luther have blood on their hands. Don't even get me started on the Orthodox churches and their complicity with the, uh, the communist regimes in Eastern Europe in the 20th century. And frankly, you're going to find the same thing when you open the Bible. It, it, it's almost as though God is not surprised when we screw up and he has to use us anyway. I mean, you got two murders and not one but three drunken incestuous rapes before you get even halfway through the book of Genesis. And in the story that is capped off in our text today, you'll remember you've got murder premeditated bargained down to kidnapping. You, you know the story where Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, and he managed to, manages to annoy his brothers enough that they sell him into slavery. The slave traders end up selling him to the, uh, the head of the Egyptian secret service, and Joseph ends up impressing his employers with his punctuality, good grooming, and, and uh, excellent typing speeds. Uh, he pretty soon is running the world's leading superpower. And then uh, when he's alerted by divine revelation to an impending famine, he uh, corners the world's grain market, like you do, so that when there's a famine that comes, everybody and his brother has to go to Egypt to buy food, including Joseph's brothers. And so 
as, as we know from the story, eventually Joseph ends up reuniting the family in Egypt. He makes sure they're taken care of. His dad Jacob comes back, uh, comes and lives in Egypt and lives there comfortably for 17 years before he dies. And then once Joseph dies, Jacob's brothers are, Joseph's brothers are deeply concerned because, after all, Joseph was sold by them into slavery, uh, and that only because they didn't murder him. Uh, so we read at the end of Genesis 50, in, starting in verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Geez, what if Joseph's holding a grudge against us over that little thing with him being sold into slavery? Uh, what if he pays us back for all the wrongs we did? And so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left us this instructions before he died. Just that you may not know about this. We really should let you know. Jacob said, um, make sure that uh, you tell Joseph that I ask you to forgive your brothers for the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Really, dad said that, right? Right, right before he kicked off, wanted to make sure you got that message. And and when the message came to him, the Bible says, Joseph wept. And, you know, I read that as Joseph being sad that his brothers hadn't seen his character, hadn't seen that he wouldn't do that sort of thing to them. But they came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Joseph said, don't be a bunch of morons. and Don't be afraid. What am I, in the place of God? Yeah, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, often you'll hear this paraphrased as what, God, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. And the more I learn, and I'm learning a lot about my Anglican heritage, the more I think about this verse, because there's a whole lot of evil that people have intended that is part of this story of the Anglican Communion. Certainly, it's part of the story of the Episcopal Church. And again, it's not like we have a monopoly on wickedness, but we certainly have our share, and and all of us have to own our own share of this legacy of shame. And yet, we also share in a legacy of faithful service to God. I mean, you remember that Thomas Cranmer, who engineered the king's remarriage and gave it theological justification, that's the same Thomas Cranmer who wrote that book of common prayer. Our Anglican heritage is rich with authentic worship of the one true God and the beauty of his holiness. It's rich with dedicated service to that God and the times and places where he set this church. This summer, a number of my colleagues are going to be going on pilgrimage to recognize the anniversary. I think this would be the 50th anniversary of the death of Jonathan Daniels, who was an Episcopal seminarian who joined the civil rights protesters and was shot when he was defending an African-American family that had simply gone into a grocery store to buy food. And the Anglican heritage is rich with the stories of poor, ordinary sinners like you and like me that Jesus says are somehow the light of the world. And You know, what we learn as we read in the Bible, what we learn as we read in the history of the church whether it's the whole church or specific parts of it, is, is, is that shame isn't the end of the story. And shame is real. We don't do any good by pretending it's not there. But if we can say, as 
Anglicans say, as Episcopalians say, in the confession that we have sinned in thought and word and in deed by what we've done and by what we have left undone. Then that shame bears within it the potential for transformation. You'll recall the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame. Indeed, it was by taking on the shame of the cross that Jesus made it a cross of glory. And I think that's the way it is with our shame as well. If we have the courage, if we have the honesty, the integrity to call our sin what it is, then we make room for Jesus to do something with it. It's not an easy process. Remember, Henry VIII saw himself as a devout Christian. I'm sure he said his prayers of confession. Incidentally, one way for us to avoid the kind of errors he made is to invite people who know us well to speak truth to us and not to have them hanged when they do. But if we sweep our junk under the rug, then it's not going to go anywhere. And if we humbly bring it to the foot of the cross, then, of course, first of all, Jesus can forgive us, and he will, and he does, but he can also use even our worst mistakes as material for building us a new life. That's my sincere hope for all of us as individuals. That's my hope for us as New Hope. That's my hope for our brothers and sisters in the Episcopal Church and for our brothers and sisters worldwide in the Anglican Communion. My hope is that God can use the shameful things we've done as building blocks for a better future. I firmly believe that's not likely to happen insofar as we deny the shamefulness of the shameful things that we have done. One of the beauties of this prayer book is that it is shot through with authentic confession. It's hard to spend a whole lot of time worshiping with it and not be aware of our deep, deep brokenness and our need for God to make some good out of it. We were born in shame, and yet God has graciously used us for good, and so he will, if only we will get out of his way and out of our own. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.